You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Five is the dedication of the temple. And, uh, and it says, I really do think it has a lot to teach us about God's design for music. You know, we live in a culture that loves to be entertained, don't we? It's an entertainment culture. There are billions of dollars poured into movies and into music and video games and sporting events every year. I read just this week that there is a Fortnite tournament coming up. Anybody know what Fortnite is? Okay, probably most of the young people in here. You might be playing it right now, okay? Fortnite is a little game on your phone that's ridiculous and all the young people are playing it. But there's so much money involved in it that I was reading about this 14-year-old or 13 or 14-year-old that's one of the favorites to win the championship, and there's millions and millions of dollars at stake for a little video game on your phone. A recent study showed the average household spends more on entertainment than clothing and charitable gifts, education, and personal care in the average household. Entertainment spending is just below what an average household spends on health care, actually, And you could call it entertainment syndrome. It's amplified by the fact that this device that people carry in their pockets enables much of it. And I left mine in my office, and I usually do, but pretend like I have a cell phone, okay? I was going to try to illustrate it tonight by holding it up. You have a device in your pocket, you have a device in your purse tonight, and it used to be that you had to go somewhere to be entertained. You used to have to go to a spot to be entertained, and, and now it happens in our homes, It happens at our fingertips. And for some of you, it happens while you're driving down the road. Please stop doing that. You can browse the internet. You can watch a full-length movie uh, at the touch of a button. In seconds, you can download a song or stream a song, or you can check all the scores. Young people and not-so-young people are playing video games night and day. They're staying up all night. uh, Even adults now are staying up all night. People in their 30s, they're neglecting their jobs. They're they're, uh, neglecting their education and, in some cases, their families. The entertainment syndrome is felt everywhere. There's a book called Music Matters by a man named Kerry Schmidt, and he wrote this. Even our modern news entertains us. Now think about that. The, the news used to be a guy in front of a screen and, and with a desk and a piece of paper reading the nightly news. And he says, from wars to train wrecks to political discourse to suicide bombers to sports playoffs, it's all creatively pre- presented with energetic music, flashy motion graphics, attractive anchors, and creatively worded scripts. We make movies out of national tragedies, global leaders out of entertainers, and one-hour specials out of major disasters. And I would have to agree with everything he said. Everything is packaged as entertainment. There's, there's always something new and something novel. Brother Mike, could you turn me down just a little bit here? There's always something new and novel, and people go thousands of dollars into debt to have the latest technology and, and go on the best tech, uh, vacations. We're getting to the point where our children are losing interest in anything they perceive as boring because they expect to be continuously entertained. There's probably no word I I prefer for my children not to say in my presence than, this is boring. You kind of hear it all the time these days, don't you? You know, you can't live in a country 
It's that inundated without the mentality of entertainment then creeping into our churches. It starts to come into the church, into the house of God. See, one casualty, I think, that one casualty along the way is music in our worship services. Music is lumped today into the entertainment category. People say it's, it's entertainment. It's, it's assumed that it's primarily there for our enjoyment. And many churches have what I would call, or what I would label, entertainment-based worship services. Many churches today, maybe I could say most churches today, are choosing the music in their services based upon the preferences of those sitting in the pews. What do they like? What do they respond to? What's popular? And it leads to pop concert worship services. And I know many churches even today that, that aren't using just Christian, we could call it maybe Christian music loosely. They're not just using Christian music in their services. They're actually playing secular music in their services. It's creating what, it, what it's creating is it's consumers instead of disciples. Because we feel a pressure to entertain people. And is that really what God intended? That church services become about what draws the crowds and instead of what pleases God. Now, before we go any further, I want to clarify that I don't believe all entertainment is bad. I engage in certain levels of entertainment. If you had watched me on Friday with my brother out on a golf course over here, you would have been entertained. I'm not saying that any form of entertainment or recreation is wrong, although I don't find golf to be very recreational or entertaining. I, I, entertaining, I find it to be extremely frustrating. Okay, I want the ball to go there, and it keeps going that direction. And so entertainment, it's not all bad. It's not like everything that you do that you might would label as entertainment would be bad. We need some entertainment or recreation or downtime as long as it's done in moderation, as long as it fits within biblical parameters. I don't, I don't think that all entertainment is bad, so I want to be balanced tonight. What I'm pointing out is that entertaining people seems to become the great purpose for much of church ministry. And that many in church leadership all over the place think I've got to entertain the people coming in. What can I do to give them something new, something they haven't seen before, something flashy, something with motion graphics? I've got to entertain, I've got to entertain. It's no longer about God the creator, rather it's about man the created. My goal tonight is to make a case that music is not just entertainment. It isn't simply the opening act while we prepare for the main event. And I'm pastoring now, I'm preaching, I, I want the preaching to be everything that it needs to be, but God gave us the gift of music and he meant for it to be a vital part of our spiritual lives. To have any lower view of it is to miss God's intentions for music. See, God's people are responsible to think about music from his perspective. We should strive to think about everything from his perspective. And I think once we do, our view of music will be elevated to something far beyond entertainment or even far beyond filler time, which I, is what I think it turns into in many churches. It's like, well, it's just what we do until we get to the real part of the service, the preaching. And I hope that we can see tonight that music deserves much more than that. It's not just, a, it's not just kind of a detour till we get to the, the final destination. It, it in and of itself has a purpose and it's an important purpose to God. Now there's perhaps no greater example of the lofty effect of music 
than what we find happening during the dedication of Solomon's temple here in 2 Corinthians 5. And that's what I want to tell you about tonight and present to you tonight is, is music's most exciting possibility. Music's most exciting possibility, and I wish I could say these were all original thoughts. Uh, many of them are mine, but much of this has been influenced by the pastor that I worked for in Stillwater, Oklahoma for many years, Wayne Hardy. Let me give you some background, though, of the text. The, the temple is complete. It's ready to be dedicated. And the dedication service it starts with powerful music. And in response to the music service, God's glory, the Bible says, descends upon the temple in the form of a cloud. And it's so thick that the priests can't even stay in their places. He comes in, his glory fills the temple so, so immensely that they have to step out. I would have loved to have been there. There are a lot of stories in the Bible that I wish I had seen and not many think about this one. Uh, but I would, I would have loved to, I, my mind always goes to the Red Sea. I would have loved to have seen the Red Sea part and walk across. And I think I just would not have been able to resist walking up to the water and sticking my arm in it. I just, I've always dreamed, as a kid, I've always thought about the Red Sea. There, sir, I would have loved to have seen David and Goliath. I would have loved to have seen the, the walls of Jericho come down. I would have loved to have seen any uh, of Jesus Christ's miracles. That would have been incredible. But I also think the dedication of Solomon's temple for me is right up there. I would have loved to have witnessed this event. So as we go through this tonight, I want you to try in your mind to imagine what it was like. First, we need to understand what this text teaches about the people involved. It says in verse 11, they were sanctified. Look at it, it says, and it came to pass... When the priests were come out of the holy place, where all the priests that were present were sanctified. See, the Levites that served were separated from the world and sanctified to God. And I was, I've been reading in my Bible through Leviticus recently, and, and it just strikes me about how much the, in, in the ceremonial purifying processes that they had to go through to be ready to be presented to be a priest and minister before the Lord. And actually in Numbers 8, we could, we're not going to go there, but the Lord told Moses that only after they had been separated and cleansed could they do the work of God. I'm thankful now that we don't have to kill a, a bullock in the front yard and put it on, you know, the, those that minister, put it on our ears and, you know, go through that process. Jesus Christ has taken care of that, by the way. I'm thankful for that. But, you know, they were sanctified. They weren't just picking people off the street to step into the temple and do the work of God. Those involved in the music ministry should be separated from the world and sanctified to God. By nature, the music ministry will attack, attract talented people. It just does. You know, in order to sing, you've got to have some talent or some ability and in order to play a piano or play an instrument. For many churches, the one requirement to serve in the music ministry is that you have talent. And that's the one requirement in many music ministries that I have seen. And, and talent doesn't hurt. As a matter of fact, I, I hope that people involved in the music ministry do have an ability. They do have an, a gift to be involved. But according, though, to the pattern of the Old Testament, the primary requirement to be involved and to serve was not talent. It was sanctification. The very first qualification to serve God in his house, in his temple, was not that you have the best voice, but that you had to go through a sanctification process. 
I remember working, uh, going to classes I took for a few years. I took music classes at Oklahoma State University there in Stillwater, Oklahoma. And I would, three days a week or so, I'd be on campus and I'd walk the halls of the music building. And it always struck me, I'd walk by a bulletin board there in the, in the middle of the Saratine Center on the campus of Oklahoma State University. And on that bulletin board, I would stop every once in a while and just read the advertisements. And the advertisements would say some, something like, such and such church in need of an organist, pay $100 a week, contact this person if you'd be willing. And I'd read another one that said, such and such ministry in need of a, of a guitar player for the worship band. If you have the skills to play the guitar, we'll pay you $200 a week to lead our worship Call such and such at this number and we'll hire you to come do the job. And it always struck me to notice that, that Oklahoma State University, which is a secular university, uh, and they're teaching music classes that have nothing to do with God. And most of the students going through there, uh, very few of them had a church home that I met. And yet that's where most of the churches were going to find those to serve in their ministries. Specifically, their music ministries. And what the message they were sending was that the, the primary qualification to serve in the music ministry is not who you are or your sanctification or how close you are to God or, or whether or not you even believe like us. The number one qualification at those churches was talent. And heaven forbid that Eastside Baptist Church ever gets to the place where the first qualification to stand up here and minister in the music ministry is, oh, well, can they sing? That's very far down the list in terms of importance. Talent's never the most important qualification to be involved in God's work. As a matter of fact, I love how in the scripture God takes those that don't seem to have very much and he uses them for great things. We had at the church in Stillwater, we had what we would call the men's group. It's a very creative name, I know. Eight to 12 guys, usually, most of them cowboys. Some of them tuck their jeans into their boots. They got lots of facial hair. Okay, these kind of guys. They wear big cowboy hats. But, uh, but years ago, our pastor, who was the music director at the time, said, we need a men's group. We'd like to have a men's ensemble. We called it the men's group. They didn't like ensemble. It was too fancy for them. So they started meeting on Monday nights. For two hours every Monday night, these regular, normal guys, cowboys, they would show up for two hours and practice music. And it didn't start out real well. But after a while, because of hard work, I think God blessed the sacrifice of those men who were willing to put two hours every week of their own time into preparing for God's work. And I got to step in after about 12 years the, the men's group had been, had been going and that, that men's group that, that is out of that church, local church, just a group of 8 to 12 guys, when I was on the group, we got to sing in places like Arizona, Washington State. We got to go to Rhode Island one year. We got to travel to Quebec, so internationally known artists. <laughs> we were in the, one of the airports up in the Northeast, and these guys were standing around, and these people walked by and said, there must be some kind of cowboy convention. Like, what is a cowboy convention? A rodeo? I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, they're just normal guys. And, and many in this room 
would fit into that category. We would not call ourselves great vocalists or great musicians, but if you are sanctified and you have a heart for the Lord, God can use it. Should a person have musical ability to minister in this capacity? Well, of course. The temple musicians worked hard. They were skilled. They were well-trained for their music ministry. But their talent was unusable if they did not meet God's requirements and standards for holiness first. Let's be careful not to assume that it's all about talent. Our culture will place an emphasis on the display of talent. You know, everyone has their own YouTube channel and Everyone's got to be on America's Got Talent and American Idol, but the New Testament places more emphasis on edification than it ever does putting your talents on display. And that's why I believe one important philosophy in a music program is this phrase, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And I think it's good for us to be reminded, just because you can hit a certain note or you can sing a certain style or you can add some impressive run with your voice or on the piano or on the organ or on some instrument, does that mean that you should? To what does it draw attention? The truth of the lyrics, God's greatness, or our abilities? And it's good to always balance our ministry, and this is, this is good for those in the choir, those involved in special music, it's good for us to balance our involvement in the ministry with just because we can doesn't mean we always should. It's a, it's a modesty issue. It's, it's making sure that God, the attention is on God and not on us. Those involved in the music at Bible-based churches ought to first be good Christians who seek to edify, and that comes well before talent. So that's the first point that I notice here is they were sanctified. The second thing that I see in verse 12 is their dress made a statement. Also, it says the Levites in verse 12, which were the singers, all of them of Asaph, Hem, and Jeduthun with their sons and their brethren, being arrayed in white linen... So, yes, next week the choir will be in white robes. I'm, why are you laughing? No, we're not going to be in white robes. But the white garments the Levites wore made a couple of statements. First, the white linen was a picture of what had, had, had taken place in their hearts. That you're going to wear white is a picture that you've been sanctified, you're pure before God, their sins had been forgiven. I'm thankful for that. But you know, we say amen to that, but let me ask you, as a Christian, does your attire, does the attire, the dress that you wear, does it say something that, about what has taken place inside your heart? Do so we have to be careful? And you say, well, that was in serving. Yes, it was, and that's where I'll keep the application, but I don't think the application is just limited there. You apply it where it needs to be. But if God has done a work of sanctification and purification and forgiveness in your heart, your dress should match what's happened on the inside. Our attire, then, though I can definitely make this application, that our attire, when we gather, uh, when we meet with God, it ought to signify the separation, the difference, what has taken place in us. Second, the way that they dress said, we are meeting with the Almighty God of Heaven, and we take it seriously. Our dress is a reflection of our attitude toward worship. Our dress, the way we choose to dress when we enter into this place, it says something about our attitude toward meeting with God. Christians, and I know this is hard to hear sometimes, I'm not trying to say it in a hard manner, but Christians, sometimes we bow up when we talk about dress standards. 
We might bow up when we talk about uh, you know, what you should wear, what should be required when you come and you meet with God. But I remember very distinctly um, going into to a courtroom uh, years ago and on the sign in front of the courtroom. And, and mo- every time I've gone into a courtroom since then, I've looked for it. And just about every one of them has this, this sign in front of the courtroom out in front. And it says, uh, it, courtroom dress rules. And almost every one of them, the first one says, no shorts. Now, me in shorts, you should be thankful for that rule. And I'm not saying there's something wrong with shorts, but I am saying if the world sees shorts as being too casual to approach an earthly judge, then what does our, our clothing say about how we view our approaching of our heavenly judge? You know, you go to a courtroom and they've got dress standards out there. You go into a restaurant, certain restaurants, they've got dress standards. You go to school somewhere, kids, there's a dress standard. You get a dress code. I mean, we shouldn't be so against dress codes uh, when it comes to meeting with our God. We have dress codes everywhere we go. I've seen a lot of real sketchy looking gas stations with dress codes. It says no shoes, no shirt, no service. That's a gas station, folks. So be, be careful to bow up when we start talking about how we should dress when we come meet with God. And I'm not saying that it makes you spiritual if you wear a certain thing. Don't get me wrong at all. But it does say something about how important we think it is when we do come to meet with our God. Our dress makes a statement. It, do, it just does. Now I know it's a balance. It's not always possible. Um, in my mind, the balance is when you come to meet with God, that you ought to wear the best you have. Now, why would I dress up with the best I have for someone on earth and not give God the same, the same consideration? You know, if I go to a job interview, hopefully that doesn't happen anytime soon, but if I have to go to a job interview, I'm probably going to consider what I wear. If I'm going to go to a wedding, very, I've never been to a wedding, and, you, and this is, I know this is everyone has a different standard. I think it's, a, it, it's an important event because people are making a vow before God. I've never not worn a tie at a wedding. Most funerals I've ever been to, I think I've usually worn a tie out of respect to the person that I'm going to pay my respects to. If I'm going to meet someone important, I'm going to dress a certain way. So my question tonight, tonight is, is God not deserving of at least that level of respect? When we come in here, we are saying something about how important we view this meeting. So, first, so I'm glad that one's done. Okay, so first is they were sanctified. Second, their dress made a statement. Third, they were prepared. Look at verse 13. It says, it came to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And I just want to focus on that. It says they came... They, they had one sound. They came together as one. And most people believe this, this means they all sang the same or they played the same tune in unison. And let me just tell you this. I've worked with musicians for years and years and years. And you don't sing and play as one with a lot of, without a lot of preparation. You just don't. They practiced. They prepared. They didn't just throw something together last minute. They understood this lofty responsibility. They were without a doubt striving for excellence. The music of the temple was actually defined by excellence. They were trained, they were skillful musicians, and they were taught that 
that when they performed, that they were going to do their very best that they could. When they ministered, they were to come. If we're going to come and play and minister before God, it ought to be done to the very best of our abilities. According to 1 Corinthians 14, 12, it says we should seek to excel at edifying, and it should still be a characteristic of a Bible-believing, Bible-based New Testament church to strive for excellence. I, I believe it ought to be. Now, you'll notice that in our music ministry here, it's not like we have a bunch of professional musicians. We're not even advertising that. You know, there are times where, where choir practice is a train wreck. I mean, it, it comes, and you think it's going to come together, and, and it just doesn't come together, and it's not as good as, as you wanted it to be. There are times where you're standing up here and you're trying to remember the words and you can't remember them. There are times when someone playing the offertory isn't going to hit every note right. And not everything's going to be done perfectly. It's certainly not going to be done professionally. And that's okay. But if our, if our mindset is that every time we come to minister before God in the area of music, that we ought to come and do it with as, as excellently as we possibly can. Why? Because God deserves it. We ought to excel at edifying. And I'm not saying it needs to be perfect, but I do think it'd be good for us to consider that we're doing it the very best that we can. He deserves it. But you know, you say, well, I'm, I'll, this message does not apply to me. I'll never be in the choir. And I understand that. Some don't have the gift of, of singing on pitch. And I understand that. But you know, we're all commanded to sing during the congregationals. And if I'm going to just be honest with you tonight, if I was to say one part of our music service is expendable and the other one is absolutely essential, I would say that the congregational singing would rise to the top of the list of that which is essential. And if we ever had to do away with one or the other, I would say the special music will set that aside because the corporate worship and praise of God's people lifting up His, His name in their voices and hearts together is the most important part of the music service at Eastside Baptist Church. So let me just say, you have an important role in that. And you say, well, I'm not, I'm not a great singer, but we, as I read this morning, make a joyful noise. We're all commanded to. And you can get involved in it. You ought to be involved in it. And it, whether or not you feel like you can sing or, and you're not going to impress the person next to you, that's fine. The only person that you've got to think about when you sing congregationals is the one in heaven who's looking at your heart. We ought to be excellent in our congregational singing and I loved singing this morning, especially, and even tonight, the, the congregational singing is really good. But I just wonder, if everybody got on board and sang as, to the absolute best of their ability, when we're singing in congregational singing, man, what would that sound like? If everyone jumped in and said, I'm not, I'm not a singer off the, up on the platform, but I will do everything I can to sing with excellence as a congregational singer. I'd love to hear that. And listen, not excellence for the sake of performance. Excellence, again, because he deserves it. Excellence not because we're trying to be professional or perfect, but because we're trying to do our best. The fact that they came together and they sang as one is a very clear sign to me that they had practiced. They were striving for excellence. 
Look down at verse 13. It says, It came to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever, that then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord. And what I want to notice here in that, in that verse is how, how God-centered that message is. It's a God-centered message in music. They weren't singing. It doesn't say they came together, they lifted up their voices and trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and, and they conveyed how emotional they felt about the worship. No, it says they praised the Lord. They were saying, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. There's very little subjectivity in that. They're simply praising God. And I'm not saying that we can't sing any music Um, that conveys some kind of emotion. I'm not at all. But what I am saying is that the message of the songs that we present and the songs that we sing in congregational singing should always be God-centered. That's the most important type of message that we can bring up. I should be lifting up the Lord. But many churches today have a man-centered message in their music. It really is about emotion. And it's interesting that many churches today will admit and even brag about having church services based on what everybody likes and what what everybody wants. And, you know, come on in here. We've got the music you like. There's not hard preaching, informal worship. You can have coffee. We can hang out. I remember seeing in a college advertisement one time, and it said, come to church. It had a picture of sandals. Come to church. Wear your sandals. Jesus did. So, I mean, okay, that's interesting. They're they're basically trying to say that worship is about your comfort. And it's not really about anything else. What really, though, if you read here in our text and many other places, the message of the music is always God-centered. The service is always God-centered. It's always about Him, and it's not about us. So how do we prevent that mentality? How do we not allow that to rub off here at Eastside Baptist Church Well, there are two principles that I believe can help us keep us focused on a God-centered message. And the one, and these are things that I have always tried to operate by, but the first principle that I think of is that music, music should cause us to think great thoughts about God. Music should cause us to think great thoughts about God. It's kind of like the phrase, if you think right, you'll feel right. And if we can get people to think the right thoughts, they will feel the right way. In other words, there's truth first and emotions second. And we have to be careful in this church culture to not put it backwards because I think a lot of churches, they want the feeling, and I understand it, I feel the pressure too. You want people to come in and experience something real. You want them to come in. You don't want something to be dry and something to to not have any life or have any meaning. So I understand it. But rather than toss out all of the truth and all of the God-centered messages of these songs that we've been singing for years and years and years, let's try to inject some life into them rather than toss them aside because a lot of the the new music today is very emotion-centered. It starts with emotion instead of truth. But you know, as we were singing And Can It Be, and I was thinking about, I'm thinking about my chains fell off. You know, I don't know about you, but that that creates a lot of emotion in me. And emotion based on truth is deeper and more real than emotion that's just been manufactured 
because of lights and style and sound. Their services, uh, many are about making people feel a certain way and, and it becomes emotionally driven instead of based on truth. And many churches have become a pillar and ground of emotion. And all the while, the emphasis on doctrine and truth has started to disappear. And that shift from, from truth to emotion has resulted in, in many, in my opinion, negative effects. But I think about the effect that it's had on men in many worship services. See, men are less comfortable with the touchy-feely emotional music. Men, uh, is, that, is that true? Do you want us to close and hold hands every service? We could have a group hug. You know, but unfortunately, men, because men have stepped back due to discomfort, our, our churches, I, in my opinion, our churches are weakened because the men aren't taking, in many cases, the leadership role that they should and I think just by default, it's not like the women in many churches are, are stepping into those roles because they want more control, but it's because men have, have created a vacuum. And someone's got to lead. And, and this music then, I think it starts to, to create this discomfort. I read a book one time called Why Men Hate Going to Church by David Murrow. And he said this, the modern contemporary music makes it seem like we're leading men into the bedroom and not into battle. And that's a sobering thought. I think it's important for the sake of Eastside Baptist Church remaining a strong man's church. That, that we're going to stay with truth. God-centered messages. That first principle that, that we should we'll do music that creates great thoughts about God is important. And if you're involved in the special music service and you're choosing songs at some point to sing... Don't listen to the style at first. Don't say, well, I really like the sound. I really like the melody. Why don't you just take the lyrics of that song and read through them a few times and say, is, does this song create in me, does it cause me to think great thoughts about God? Because I think there would be songs that we weed out in our music if we just really stop and just think about the truth. Stop and just think about the lyrics. And, and honestly, there are some hymns in our hymnal uh, that when I stop and think about the truth in those hymns, I, I, maybe that might, that might be why we don't sing them very much. Because there are hymns in the hymnal. I'm not even saying that every song in the hymnal uh, conveys real great truth about God. And that's not my point tonight, but we ought to be mindful of that. We will always strive to do our best to, to sing songs and use music that causes us to think great thoughts about God. The second principle tonight is when it comes to church music, God is the audience. When it comes to church music, God is the audience. And this may be controversial for me to say it, but I want you to give it a full hearing uh, before you write it off. In many churches today, the target for everything, as I've already said, is the people in the pews. The music is chosen based on what appeals to consumers and not necessarily what God would prefer. That entertainment-driven approach to ministry was what I would call pragmatism. And that rather than operating based on some standard or set of guiding principles, uh, many hold their fingers up to the wind and they find out what people preferred and what might would get the best results. They allow personal taste and maybe what conjures the best response to determine a church's direction but listen, when our target audience is God, it changes the importance of the music in our services. 
When it's no longer about us, and yet it now, though, it's about God, when He is our audience, that causes me to think about music a little bit differently. You know that God enjoys the singing and the music that His people play and sing? We're commanded to sing to Him. One whole book of the Bible is a book of songs. It's the book of Psalms. It brings Him great joy to hear His children gather and sing with passionate hearts. I know that one of the byproducts of godly music is a preparation of the hearts for the preaching. I know that it does that. But the Bible says in Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19 that we should sing with grace and make melody in our hearts to who? To the Lord. So hear me out here. First of all, to know that Scripture commands us to sing to the Lord, that should affect how you sing. When you're singing and you say, I don't have much to add and, and I, I, don't, I can't really you know, sing on pitch and I'm not sure what everyone thinks about it. No, listen, you're to sing to, with grace, making melody in your heart to the Lord because he's intently listening to your heart. He's the audience. But second, this thought brings clarity to a statement that many have said uh, about the music service and though I, I do believe it's true, I don't believe that it's all that there is about it when they would say that this is the time to prepare hearts for the preaching. Now, it seems to me that that philosophy maybe robs music of its potential in some ways. So let me talk you through this. The goal of church music should be to point the hearts of the congregation to God. Not just point the hearts of of the congregation to the preaching time. And again, I know this may sound controversial, but if you'll hear me out through the end, I think you'll find that it it may cause us to have a a higher view, and it may actually impact the preaching in a greater way. This does not in any way or any means demean the supremacy of preaching. And that would be kind of counterproductive for me as the preacher to stand up here and demean the importance of this time. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. There's no more important thing that happens in a New Testament church. It is our primary responsibility of this church as the pillar and ground of the truth to make sure that preaching stays preeminent. But to say, though, that music's sole purpose or only purpose is to prepare hearts for the preaching is equivalent to saying that, well, if there's not preaching, then there'd be no reason for music. You understand that? If I'm going to say that music is meant to prepare hearts for preaching, well, what happens then if in some service we decide not to have a message? Are we saying then that music fulfills no purpose then because there's no preaching? No, we're not saying that at all. We're just saying that music is to point men's hearts and ladies' hearts and children's hearts to God, not just the preaching. Am I saying that the music service doesn't help the preaching? No, not at all. It absolutely does. And as a guy who preaches now every week, when it's done correctly and God's people get involved, if the vision and standard of the music service is lofty enough, it it helps the preaching tremendously. I'm very thankful for it. And here's why. Because if a person... Just listen to this. If a person has meditated on great truths about God and expressed personal gratitude and worship to God for who He is and what He has done before the preaching ever begins, then that person is even more ready to receive God's Word. 
If, he, if that individual, and by that I mean if you as an individual have treated the music service as an opportunity to sing to God, to convey gratitude to God, to, to communicate with God, to convey your heart in worship to God, then when the time for the preaching to roll around, the preaching will be even more effective. If church members would truly engage their minds and hearts to comprehend the truths presented during the music service, imagine the impact that has on the preaching. So the music can most certainly enhance the preaching, but to imply that it only exists to help the preaching diminishes the role of music according to the Bible. God desires to hear his people corporately lift up their voices in praise. The fruit of our lips is like an offering that is sweet-smelling to God. And that leads right into the most exciting possibility in music. It's seen right here. And I believe that this passage, what we can take away, and and I understand that there, there are parallels between Israel and the church, and I don't believe that they're the same thing. I want to be clear about that. But in 2 Chronicles, God is moved by the music. And I know this is, this is a different setting. It is the dedication of the temple. But I just want you to stop and think about that. God is moved by the music. And what a thought. Before anything else happened, we see the music having this undeniable effect on God himself. I mean, something about the sound of the voices and the instruments and the sincerity of hearts and the message in song, it moved our Heavenly Father. And I think we can understand from this passage that God loves and anticipates music. I don't believe He just created music. And many would say, well, God created music. And I would say, I believe maybe that's a technicality. He, he did give us music, but I don't believe he just created it. I believe that music is actually part of God's nature. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will joy over thee with singing. So it's not like God just decided to create a gift for us to return to him in the form of music. No, the Bible says he rejoices or joys over us with singing. He's a musical being himself. So when you think about music, that it's not just created, that it's actually part of God's nature and that we manifest our, our, created, our being created in the image of God when we sing, well, that takes it to another level too. We know God does not manifest himself today in the same way that he does here in 2 Chronicles 5, but we also know his character doesn't change. So in other words, if this music service moved God at the dedication of the temple, I don't think there's any reason for us to think that we can't strive for a purpose that lofty in our weekly services right here at Eastside Baptist Church. Now it's not going to look the same. He's not going to appear in a in a cloud. But if every person will start coming and expecting God to move in our midst every time we open the hymnal, engage their hearts to the one, 100% to the very best they can, I think it would change our music services. And I believe he might would even move in a way he never has before. That's the possibility. You talk about an exciting possibility. See, this passage is here for a reason, 
And I believe it's here primarily to reveal something to us about God. What does it reveal to us about God? Well, God can be moved by music. So the next time you open a hymnal, or the next time you hear the choir sing, or that you hear some music in our services that moves you, engage yourself. Consider those truths. Don't say, boy, I'm ready for this to get over so the preaching can get here and get over and I can get out and, and, and go to Culver's. Now, I wonder if God anticipates our music services more than we do. I wonder if he's looking at us just ready with anticipation every week, saying, are they going to really engage here? Are they going to really sing with their hearts to me today? I mean, I believe it provides some important things here that when God's people, this text here says, basically when his people are separated from the world and cleansed from the inside out, God's moved. Sometimes I wonder if we ought not start our services with an invitation. Because for the, throughout the week, we're kind of letting things build up and we've got things in our hearts. And I wonder if, if maybe God doesn't move in the music service because we haven't taken care of business yet. But according to this passage, if his people are sanctified, God's moved by music. When his people sing with their hearts directed toward him as the audience, God is moved. When great thoughts about God are presented and truly considered by his worshipers, God is moved. When we come together and we refuse to use the first half of the service as filler time or to go to the bathroom or, or just time of fellowship in the foyer. And I'm not trying to call people out, uh, but, but, but if we anticipated the music service as we ought to, then I don't believe that anybody at Eastside Baptist Church would come in late. Because you're thinking, I don't want to miss that first song. Because that first song is just as much an important part of that service as the preaching time. I'm not saying they're the same, but I'm thinking, I wonder if the first part of the service is directed to God, and God is the audience. That means when we sing songs to Him, that may be the part of the service He most anticipates. So we're going to put that on the back burner... We're going to roll in five or ten minutes late or, or we're going to get started and then now we're going to go to the bathroom because we, we spent time fellowshipping before. Why rob him of the time he may be anticipating the most? It's time for us to stop having a low view of the music service and elevate it because God deserves it. And as Colossians 3.16 says, God's not the only one who benefits we're helped by being taught these truths and admonished through the singing. So let me just have you, uh, give you a couple closing questions here. How lofty is your view for the music service here? Is your mind locked in to the truths? Is your heart in tune? You know, I wonder how locked in we can be sometimes. It seems like there are, are plenty of people not in here at times. Let me just say this, if, unless you have a good reason to not be out there, come join your church family. You know, don't just wander the halls unless you have got a good reason. And We've got guys assigned and they're watching, that's great. Otherwise, come be a part of the church. Come step in here and say, I'm going to engage my mind with my church family. I'm going to give my heart to the Lord in this time of singing because I'm not looking at this as time to wonder. I'm looking at this as time that God may be anticipating. So are, do you find yourself engaged here? 
When we come in, do you hold a songbook? Do you strive to look at the lyrics? Do you strive to understand every phrase? Or do you let the chance go by to maybe help even someone watching you as an example to see do they believe what they're singing? You know, I think about that when I stand near my children and I haven't been able to do that their whole lives. <laughs> I've always been right here leading songs. But I think when I have been able to stand by them, the whole time I'm thinking, what's my son going to think that my view of the music service is based on this song right here? And you know, I know most of those songs, but I almost always take a hymnal and hold it in my hands and try to really focus on the lyrics. And I try to sing them as clearly as I can because I don't want my son to come along behind me and say, well, dad didn't think the music was that important. So I don't have to think it's that important. Is it just time filler for you? Something that we do because we've always done it? Or is it a time that you use to directly communicate to God out of a heart of gratitude and praise? Are you missing weekly opportunities to express your heart to the one to whom you owe everything? I wonder how many of our music services truly move the one for whom they should be intended. I wonder how often we gather together and while we're mindful of each other while we're here, the one who we should be focused on is kind of the guy left standing in the corner. The most exciting possibility of music is that when it's done the right way by people right with God, it can move our Father. Don't rob God of something He desires, something He anticipates every time that we meet. By having this low view of a music service. Wednesday night, we come in here, open a hymnal and sing the very best you can. On your way over, why don't you make sure that all the things that are in your heart that have built up from Monday through Wednesday, that you take care of those with God. So that you can come in here and there's a clean heart, an engaged heart. Take a hymnal, look at it, sing out. Encourage the people next to you and decide I'm not going to waste this important part of the service anymore. Let's stand together, every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.